Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and welcome to the Highlighter Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. We're in the middle of August, and this month we're focusing on Revolt of the Delivery Workers by Josh Jezza. It's about the 65,000 workers in New York City who deliver whatever you order on DoorDash directly from whichever restaurant it comes from all the way to your door. It's tough, demanding, competitive work performed mostly by immigrants, many of whom are undocumented, who rely on expensive electric bikes in order to eke out a measly wage. Mr. Jezza's reporting focuses on how working conditions got worse during the pandemic, how their bikes began to get stolen at record rates, how the police didn't do very much, and about what the workers did to fight back. I hope you enjoy this interview I had with Mr. Jezza a few weeks back, and I hope that it inspires you to read the piece. All right, let's get right to it. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for being on Article Club. Thanks for having me. We're super excited to ask you some questions about your piece, Revolt of the Delivery Workers, which um, we put in the Highlighter newsletter in September. And then since then, people have just wanted to talk about it. And so it's really great to have have you on. The The article is is winning awards as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's been right. It's been really exciting to, to see the response. Um, yeah, I got a sort of New York Press Club award recently. Some other recognitions. Exciting. It's amazing and great. It was really pretty amazing how you reported this piece. And so because I know that you report on a number of different things, um, how did you get started on on this piece? I have wanted to report on New York delivery work for a while. I've done other reporting on kind of gig platforms and sort of various ways that apps and technology are, are shaping labor. And, you know, despite living in New York, the specifics of the delivery industry there were always a bit of a, a mystery to me. Um, like if, you, if you spend any time there, you'll see there's sort of a very formalized sort of outfit that delivery workers wear and use. And it's this sort of heavy duty e-bike, sort of the boxy insulated bags, various other kind of accoutrements that it seems like there's 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 a sort of a uniform it's very recognizable and I was curious sort of when that started and why and also just how they how they work what the work looks like so it kind of started as kind of a kind of a technically focused story I wanted to find like a bike mechanic there's some delivery workers who double as as bike mechanics for other delivery workers or someone who'd been around for a long time um, and that was sort of how I started talking to talking to workers and there were a number of the delivery workers that you spent a lot of time with, it seemed like, um, you know, right from the beginning, Sergio and Cesar and then Anthony. And these mm-hmm. turn out to be like fairly influential and important people in, in what's going on. Can you share a little bit about how you approached them and how you got to know them? And I'm assuming that you're a cyclist yourself, like even on some of the things, like how did you actually follow this story? Yeah, so um, when I started looking into doing a story on delivery work there was some organizing starting to happen it was kind of mid tail i mean what is the tail end of the pandemic but um it was sort of early 2021 and there had been a, a, a sort of public protest around wages and bathroom access and some some other issues and initially i i'd reached out to sort of the the organizers of that and was trying to find um a worker who was involved in, in that push, who who maybe I could profile, didn't end up getting the kind of access I would need to do a feature um, story 
on, on them. And, and so I reached out to this other worker that people had talked about, Anthony, who ran just a, like a Facebook page. He just posted videos of himself riding around New York, giving tips on delivery work. And it had you know thousands, tens of thousands of followers. And it became sort of a hub to talk about bike thefts, which was sort of this issue that had been galvanizing the delivery workers to start start protesting. And so I, I just messaged Anthony and, and asked him if he you know, wanted to meet in a park at some sometime when he had time and talk about his work. And he was very open about it, sort of following him around, went to the garage where they work, where they, where they rest sort of between the lunch and dinner shift. And he introduced me to Caesar, who was just a just a guy that he met at one of these protests who started a similar Facebook page. And they were doing some organizing around sort of recovering stolen bikes and things like that. So this is sort of getting referred from one worker to another. And they're very open. I'm a cyclist, but I never really follow them around because they go too fast. <laughs> and they, they discourage me from even trying or like, you're just going to slow us down, you know, where we don't have time to wait around for you on your non-electric bike to huff after us. But they were very open about letting me hang out with them in their in-between shift times. And, and then also, and, and Sergio and the others, when they started this patrol of the bridge, yeah, the Willis Bridge, where they started kind of a kind of a community watch type type organization. Yeah, they all allowed you to go to the bridge and to the garages, and it seems like you established trust fairly quickly. Uh, given that, you know, like in your piece, you talk about how they're stuck, it seems like they may be distrustful at the beginning, but were they open right from the beginning? They were pretty open. They were, I mean, they were so angry about the thefts and the lack of attention they've been getting that they were pretty open. The garage, they were not super open about initially, and I was sort of agreed to be a, a kind of vague about the exact location of it. It's like, these garages are not really, I mean, they're not licensed or anything. They're just sort of parking garages that have attendants that start up, that maybe know somebody or start up this kind of side business. And and so there were certain things that kind of I had to be a little bit vague about, but um, but other than that, they were very open and sort of you know wanted publicity around um, the thefts especially and some of the things they were doing to, to sort of protect themselves. Yeah, it was interesting, like in your piece, you know, you talk about just the entire industry and even the idea of 65,000 delivery workers. So like I'm in the Bay Area, most people are using their cars at this point. But the idea that, first of all, there's 65,000 and they're on their bikes, like for, you know, it's just different, you know, for somebody who's not in New York City. But it's really interesting, like your piece at the beginning was like, okay, this is what's going on. We've got the apps, the industry's already changing. But I really felt a shift when you talked about the electric bikes and also the thefts. And it seems like they were sort of adapting. Is that right? They were sort of adapting, adapting, even though like they, they had to put all this money into these like thousands, like these bikes are thousands of dollars. And yet something started to switch them. And obviously it was, it was that their bikes were starting to get stolen. Did you get a sense that they were like, Hey, like enough is enough at this point? Yeah, I think the, the bikes were definitely the galvanizing thing because they're very expensive. You know, they end up spending you know, over $2,000 usually on these bikes and all the sort of other gear that goes on them and they need them to work. And that's did increase during the pandemic pretty sharply, but it really came on top of a lot of dissatisfaction with 
their treatment. Just, you know, the, the pandemic saw a lot of people turning to delivery and it didn't necessarily, it wasn't reflected in higher pay really. And and people started turning to delivery for, for very small orders, which they were doing before, but but sort of the, 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 the pace, the ratio of that increased. So you had situations where they're running across town. And the, the other thing that happened is that restaurants, you know, now that they don't have in-person dining, they all rely on delivery and so they expand their delivery radiuses out to you know ridiculous distances and so you have these situations where the workers are you know going three miles to deliver a sandwich or like an ice cream cone or something like that and customers who don't realize how far they've come you know tip them a dollar or something um and you have so you have that you have the low pay you have the kind of ridiculous lengths at the same time you have the thefts at the same time you have that they're getting exposed to COVID while everyone else is locked down and people, you know, calling them heroes and things like that. And, 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 and also the fact that the restaurants, which had never been great about letting them use the restroom were now, you know, sensibly for COVID re- reasons, not letting them in to use the restroom. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of very demeaning, very difficult, dangerous work. And the thefts were sort of the thing that really pushed them over the edge. Yeah, in your piece, you talk about going across town just to deliver a slice of cake. And yeah, you like you really get into just how the apps have shifted as well. And as a person who doesn't quite, you know, understand how that all works, I understand, for example, that they're not well regulated, they're contractors, you know, like that people in different industries are trying to become, you know, actual workers. But you've been following sort of like these apps. And so How do you explain sort of just the ability for the apps just to heighten the expectation, especially on the electric bike? Like that is a huge investment that they have to buy and that they have to maintain. Is it just because there's no regulation? It's it's partly the lack of regulation. It's also the way that the apps really restructured what delivery work looks like in ways that I hadn't realized or or thought about before I started reporting it. Pre, I mean, there's always been delivery in New York. There's a long history of that, but it, but it used to be workers who were, you know, they worked for a specific restaurant. The restaurant had a delivery radius that was reasonable, you know, 10, 20 blocks or whatever. It would, you know, uh, often the workers would double as like clean dishwashers or, or waiters or whatever. It was not, it was also a difficult, dangerous job biking around the city, delivering pizza or Chinese food or whatever, but you kind of had a home base that you, you know, could return to, you could eat there, you could use the restroom, you would be dispatched, you know, when five orders were up and along a certain route that made sense. But that all changed with the apps where you suddenly have this floating workforce that can pick up food from any restaurant, whether or not it offers delivery and deliver it to anywhere else. And that's where you sort of get this, you know, this sort of mid- 2010s like Uber for everything kind of dynamic where you have a lot of advertising and encouragement from the apps to, you know, order an ice cream cone from wherever this place that doesn't deliver it, someone will bring it to your doorstep. It was very, you know, kind of, kind of magical or they, they encouraged you to think of it as magical, um, sort of hiding the labor that, that happened behind the scenes. And so workers, you know, initially kind of lured onto these apps by high pay because these apps because the companies had sort of fantastic amounts of venture capital funding. So like for a while, people were making hundreds of dollars a day, could pay very well, you know, moved over to these apps and kind of figured out how to make it work. And then, you know, the pay gets ratcheted down and down and down. And they ask more and more of the workers. And then so they turn to this technology that previously had found its way into delivery work, 
you know, mostly for sort of older, older Chinese delivery workers who needed it to just keep up, sort of to stay in the job. And it became just kind of a de facto job requirement. Like you're not going to be able to make enough money to survive using the apps if you aren't going 30 miles an hour, seven hours a day. And so it just became a thing that everyone needed. So it's really, it's, it's you know, the sort of usual pressures of, you know, asking more of workers for less money to sort of turn a profit, though none of the apps have been consistently profitable still, um, sort of, but also combined with the fact that these workers aren't tethered to a restaurant anymore. They're just sort of floating around delivering from place to place. That, that really changed things. Yeah, you do note that these apps are still not making money, which just gets me to be so cynical. It, it, it gets me as a reader to think, well, they're just trying to mess things up then. Like, are they even actually trying to make money themselves? Like, you know, they can be really oppressive, you know, to the workers, but but even after all of their funding, they're still not making money. So, is I mean, isn't that a problem? Yeah, I mean, it's a problem kind of facing the entire Uber for X <laughs> cohort of, of companies. I think a lot of them were premised on becoming monopolies in, in, their, in their market. And, you know, they try to turn a profit by kind of squeezing everyone at, at every end. So restaurants, you know, now that customers are accustomed to ordering off the apps, the restaurants can charge the the apps can charge restaurants for visibility for advertising and things like that you know they can pay workers a little less now that restaurants have gotten rid of their delivery workforce and they're the only job in town and and so that's how they're trying to turn profit but fundamentally it's just not profitable to deliver an ice cream cone 20 (laughs) three miles across town they haven't you know they say that sort of you know, the, the algorithmic optimization will get there at some point, but seems seems unlikely. And so it's sort of, they rely on this, you know, very underpaid workforce that is kind of really, really racing around quite dangerously. And it, and it seems like they're relying on a very predictable workforce. And specifically, you're highlighting folks who are undocumented. Um, I'm assuming they're almost all men. Is that true? Yeah, almost. There are a few women, but but overwhelmingly men, overwhelmingly undocumented. The way that I thought about it, I really appreciate how you said how like there's this hope among at least some of the some of the workers to come to the United States and make enough money and then go back to Guatemala or to Mexico. But for me, it seemed like it was very much like an indentured servitude in some ways, where they're putting in their time and they're just not making any money and like. They're, try- they're trying the other app relay and they're trying just to different things, but they're basically just scraping by. And so their frustration, you know, is just, there's just really no way to be able to save any money to, to send home or to, to save in order to go back to, to home. Um, and, I, and I definitely felt like that stuckness. Yeah, I think a lot of them do get stuck. I mean, New York is very expensive. A lot of them are living you know, with family members, with other delivery workers, roommates, and then you have the investment in the bike. And then if the bike gets stolen, that gets rid of you know, months of months of pet, pet savings. And, and yeah, but, but most of the workers I spoke with, you know, they wanted to come in, put in their time, work five years and make enough money to return home and buy a house was sort of the general, the general wish. But, you know, I met workers who'd been here for 10 years longer and sort of hadn't saved that money yet. Yeah, you had, you know, you had one who's 19, you have them in the 30s and 40s. So you definitely were reporting a a range. And and then, you know, in the middle of the piece, you know, with the frustration, it really became clear 
that like they were trying to do different things. And so there's the approach of taking care of each other because you really can't trust the bureaucracy, the police, the police doesn't even know about this whole thing. You can't actually organize, you, you really can't expect anything from the city. And then you have other folks, you know, like organizers like Gustavo, who basically says, no, the way is we actually have to organize. Can you share a little bit about those different approaches and then why, you know, certain workers would go with either approach? Yeah, I found this really interesting. And so you have the the delivery boys, the the Caesar and and Sergio and the, the others who were really about, you know, kind of mutual aid, community self-defense. They organized these big WhatsApp groups where workers would report their bikes stolen and people would sort of fan out and spot the bike and then intercept the the thief and and recover it. And they developed these these networks because the police were just completely ignoring the thefts. You know, they would report the thefts, nothing would happen. At some point they just stopped bothering to report them and and sort of took matters into their own hands. Um, and kind of at the same time you have much more conventional organizing centered around the Workers' Justice Project, which is uh, this sort of workers' center organizing group, and Gustavo and some other workers who, you know, they hold big rallies and they have signs and lists of demands and, and sort of get lawmakers on their side and, and, and lobby and do, do things like that to sort of push regulation. And they ended up succeeding kind of incredibly quickly <laughs> in, a, in a year or so they they managed to pass um just sort of first of its kind regulation of the apps and, and sort of really capitalizing on kind of the the rhetoric around the heroic delivery worker that, that you saw at that point in the pandemic um but a lot of the other workers were sort of mis i don't want to say mistrustful they were sort of, sort of, sort of cynical about the, the the city government and the political process that they didn't really want to bother with it. They also, you know, worried that the apps would retaliate against them, like they're undocumented, they're worried that the city cracks down on the apps, the apps will crack down on them, and they'll lose this lifeline. So there was just sort of a lot of skepticism that this was a, a good avenue to go down, even though they all sort of wanted the same thing. So you had yeah. sort of two branches, one, one sort of pushing the system for regulation and the other that was just sort of very much about creating mutual aid structures to replace the, the city government. Yeah, I can see how the mutual aid would be, you know, those structures would be um, more compelling, especially if your friends are being attacked, like every day or, you know, often. And I can see how this idea of, oh, maybe we can organize for a year or two, even though it did happen quickly. It was pretty amazing, you know, some of the progress that's been made. But I can sort of see how this idea of let's protect each other is more compelling, especially how you sort of use the end of your piece to sort of like share some really intense things that happen. Like the guy, the guy with the saw, you know, who was going around. I mean, that's really intense. And then the guy, you know, the stakeout, the entire huge stakeout with, you know, them like basically taking the law into their own hands and like making sure that they were able to get their bikes back. Um, it seemed as far as like on your reporting, you were sort of sharing that it was really important what they were doing in the moment while they were waiting for some of this organizing, you know, to happen. Is that sort of like your view as far as like what you saw at the time that was more important to them? Yeah. And it depends on who you talk to. So sort of, sort of I mean, Gustavo and some of the people involved with, with that group were, you know, they, they wanted 
they recognized that it was not sustainable to sort of have a second job enforcing the law and <laughs> running around catching bike thieves. And so they they were really sort of for, they, they were sort of tolerated that kind of behavior, but were really putting the emphasis on, on, on regulation and reform. And then the other group, you know, it got results quickly, which is what they wanted. Like they're not planning on making this a lifelong career. You know, they hope to sort of work for a couple of years and go home. They just want people to stop stealing their bikes every night. And, you know, they get results, then they post about it. And so you have these cases where they, you know, post about recovered bikes and, and sort of criminals apprehended and things like that. And it sort of that gets its own kind of momentum. Like people join their groups because they see that they're the ones that are sort of very publicly getting things done in a sort of much more visible way than, than lobbying the political process yields. Yeah, in your piece, you talked about um, Juan, who's um, Caesar's uncle. And it just seems like there's some folks who believe that politics is broken. There's no way that you could actually do anything about it. And it's more important to organize our people. And I guess one question that I had, because I had no idea that there's 65,000, like, do you feel like they had a sense, you know, of just how enormous, like, if they were able to sort of, you know, organize, did they, did you feel like they had a sense of that it's just so many people who are delivering? It's interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that they know that there's lots and lots of delivery workers in the city. It's interesting that something that the the delivery says, the, the sort of worker justice project affiliated activist group has been trying to do is to branch outside of the Spanish speaking delivery worker networks. A lot of this stuff sort of happens, this organizing happened along ethnic, but also just linguistic lines. It was very much among the Spanish speaking delivery workers, but you know, it's a hugely diverse workforce. There's a lot of Chinese workers, a lot of South Asian workers, a lot of African immigrants, like it, it, this is just a sort of a small portion and mm-hmm. and those workers are also suffering from thefts and were mad about it and would would participate in some of the protests but not to sort of the degree that the spanish-speaking workers would i don't know that they ever sort of really this this the sort of more mutual 80 groups they 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 would they, they sort of stayed in there enclave and and they were mostly sort of about defending themselves while the activists sort of were really making an effort to you know translate their demands and and reach out to the other communities yeah it's pretty cool that they were able to make so much progress so quickly i know that like you know you you finished the story and you, you know, you're on to other stories too but do you have a sense of additional things that they might be working on now a lot of the problems have continued. The thefts are still a thing. The, the, they're still posting in the groups about stolen bikes and, and who spotted one where. The bathroom access has gotten better. That was part of the regulation that got passed. There's there's sort of new controls that they have about being able to say, I won't deliver over this bridge or use this tunnel or sort of set my radius at a certain distance. I don't have a good sense of how successful that has been. I think in part because the bridge that I, I really focused on, they weren't working. It was sort of their commute home when they were getting attacked there. I don't know sort of how how effective that has been. And in terms of what they're working on now, and so the other sort of thing that was part of that regulation is it's going to set a minimum pay and standard, and that's kind of in the works. There's a sort of a big study happening to sort of figure out what that pay, pay level should be. I know that they're working on sort of charging stations and things like that to sort of get them out of these 
garages and sort of impromptu rest stops and things like that. I haven't seen that, seen how much traction that's getting with the city yet. I think there's sort of statements about broad openness to it, but it's taking a while. But but yeah, that's as far as I, I, th- I think a lot of the problems continue. The regulations starting to have some effects, but you know, still a difficult job and, and the thefts are still a problem. Yeah, thanks, Josh, for all of your time on this piece. I think one big final question that I have is around consumers. And, you know, your piece didn't really touch on consumers or people who order from these apps. But like, what's your sense? You know, like, what's your sense of where people are at? And what's your sense about like what we can do when choosing or not choosing to get, you know, to make a dinner order? Yeah, it's really tricky. And I I asked a lot of the workers this and, you know, they would all say like, don't stop ordering <laughs> delivery because uh, it's it's their livelihood. And we just sort of say like, we'll try to be aware of the difficulty of the job and, and tip well and know that you're not tipping sort of, you know, as you would in a restaurant, like 20% or, or whatever of the price of the meal, but you're tipping for the labor of bringing that meal to you, which is going to be difficult sort of no matter whether it's a ice cream or you know, a dinner. And so that was sort of their, their thing. Sometimes it's better to call a restaurant, but, you know, restaurant delivery conditions vary too. And one of the big apps they work for, at least in New York, you know, even if you call the restaurant, it may have outsourced it to Relay. So it's sort of difficult to sort of be a conscientious consumer with this stuff. And and ultimately it's sort of a, a policy question and, and sort of a, a question of how to make the working conditions better and sort of give them Benefits are more similar to being an employee in terms of you know, health insurance and and workers' comp and things like that when, when they get injured. Um, but but yeah, in terms of like just sort of how to be a better consumer, all the workers would just say be more aware of the the difficulty of the job. Try to know where you're ordering. For those something else, they would always say is they would deliver these tiny orders and and know that the customer just had no idea what they'd ordered from. They just sort of clicked a button on on the app and had no idea they crossed two bridges or went five miles or whatever to try to be aware of that when you're when you're tipping and ordering. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be able to try to figure it out. Our our group, you know, focuses on reading, you know, and also discussing, you know, the highest quality nonfiction. And but we have started to think about okay, what can we do? And so we'll definitely be talking about that during our conversation. But Josh, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for being on Article Club. I just am really, really grateful. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the thoughtful questions. I'd like to thank Josh Jezza yet again for generously sharing his time with us at Article Club. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I hope that you join us for our discussion of Revolt of the Delivery Workers on Sunday, August 28th at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. You can sign up at highlighter.cc discussion, or you can email me at mark at highlighter.cc if you have any questions or want to know more. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you yet again for being part of our reading community, and I hope you have a great week.